rest of my day until you came. And now I receive all that you've done for me. You stepped down from your glory to prove you were for me. And now the day is taking bets this morning how many of us are going to be here. Well, I want you guys to get up on your feet. Find somebody. Tell them good morning. If you feel lonely, when you feel afraid, 
You're not the only. We are all the same. In need of mercy to be forgiven and be free. It's all you got to lean on, but thank God it's all you need. And all the people said amen. Oh, and all the people said amen. Give thanks to the Lord for His love never ends. And all the people said amen. If you're rich or poor, well, it don't matter. We are strong. You know love is all we're after. We're all broken, but we're all in this together. God knows we stumble and we fall. And he so loved the world, he sent his son to save us all. And all the people said amen. This is awesome. Now, look, people are going to start coming in at 1030 this morning. Okay? You can glare today. I, I got to say, it just about killed me. I, you know, I always, whenever the time changes, um, remember the old days when you had to move your clocks? No, you don't remember that? Come on. You had to change your clocks down. Well, now most of the stuff is digital, and it does it on its own. It doesn't matter. I still wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning. See, Sunday's a work day for me. And I'm always afraid that I'll wake up when church is supposed to start. So just to make sure I don't, I started waking up at 4 o'clock this morning. So, um, yeah, I've, the Lord and I have had good conversations today. Mo most of them probably I'm going to have to ask you know, forgiveness for. But uh, I'm glad to see you here this morning. I know we have quite a few people watching on, um, from their bedroom on the Internet. And uh, good morning. But uh, I am not sure I'm a fan of the time change. But see, if, if all of a sudden we start, we need a party, a time, the time change party. That's what we need. The only platform item politically is we're going to get rid of the time change. But the problem is we would have a split in the party over whether or not we change the time this way. Do you want sun in the morning or sun at night? How many of you would prefer sun in the morning? See, you are the people that are right with God. That <laughs> Rise up, church. The Lord wants sun in the morning. I don't know. I, anyway. Uh, that's my little rant on uh, on the time change. 
So uh, glad you're here. You will be glad you are. We've got a great morning uh, in James today. If you're home in bed, roll over. Underneath your bed is a Bible, one of the 13 you have. Grab it. We're going to be in James 1 this morning, and uh, we're going to have a good time together. Thanks for being here. Uh, if you take your worship guide, let me highlight a few things for you. We have, uh, uh, well, going on right now. Uh, first of all, I want to highlight uh, at the bottom of the middle is our Easter schedule. Uh, we call it Resurrection Weekend, uh, so we encourage you to look at that. We have a Good Friday service uh, on um, March 25th. Uh, it, it is 30 minutes long. We will have candles all over the stage. We'll have communion. It's a reflective service. Uh, it's very it's very quiet and a chance to look at the Scripture and sing some hymns together. And uh, so if you work, uh, maybe you can get 30 minutes off, and we really keep it strict with the time so that those of you who don't get the afternoon off can still um, kind of start your weekend really reflecting. It's at 3 o'clock, and the reason it's at 3 is because that's when the shofar was blown in Jerusalem, proclaiming that the Passover lamb had been slain. And uh, so that was around the time that Jesus Christ had died as well, and we'll talk more about that as we get closer to the holiday. Um, also, Easter Sunday uh, is uh, the 27th, and uh, we're going to be starting at 9.30. That's about, a, that's about an hour and 15-minute service, and uh, most of our children above preschool age are going to be in here. And uh, we have a good old time, but this room fills up, so I would encourage you to be here early, like 9.30. So... Uh, you know, when I slam you, you don't laugh very well. When somebody slams me, you laugh your hearts out. Anyway, so uh, plan on being here and bring family and friends. It's a great time together, lots of music and testimonies and sharing, and it's just a really special morning. I uh, also want to highlight um, uh, something top of the middle. This study is for everyone. It says it right there. On Sunday nights, uh, Pastor Robert Grimes, who is our missions pastor, is going to begin uh, leading us through something that many of you have seen a few of and maybe some of you have seen all of, but uh, it is a video series by Ray Vanderlaan, and there are, there are video vignettes between 15 and 30 minutes where he is taking you on a tour of the Holy Land, and then he, he, he takes to parts of Scripture what, that took place there, and then he talks about the practical application of that. These are uh, the conversation. You show the video, and then you have a conversation about it and how it affects real life and what is the lessons in the text. I hope that over your time here, you have learned that context of Scripture is super significant. Um, to try to understand what a text means without context and culture, it, it's, it just puts you at a disadvantage. You read everything that's happening today and around you into the Scripture instead of taking out of the Scripture. One of the things you learn when you go to a hermeneutics class in a seminary is you've got to fight the urge to read into Scripture what you want it to say and make sure you're reading out of it what was it, it was intended to say. The Bible is God's inspired and without error word to us, and, uh, and it, it speaks to us, but we have to work. St scripture says, study to show yourself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed in 2 Timothy, it tells us. And, uh, and that means we have to have some understanding of what's going on. And this is a, uh, this is a very unique series because each week is individual. Uh, you can... You can skip three weeks and come back and, and watch the next, and, and you can walk away having learned something powerful. Um, uh, it's, it's a long series. There's about 36 of them or something like that, and uh, you're going to keep going as long as people are interested. But this is really a, a study of context, um, and, uh, and boy, if you've never done it, it is one of the best. Again, this is uh, by Dr. Ray Vanderlaan. Um, 
So the world may know is the title of it. It's going to be led by Robert, a discussion after. It's like sitting in a, a living room, and it's just going to be wonderful. So that begins tonight, and we would encourage you to come out and, uh, and enjoy that if you'd like. It's, it's just a wonderful time. And we're gonna, I don't know how long it's going to last. It's, we're just going to keep going, uh, and, and there will be some breaks, but we'll let you know. But each week is self-contained, and we really, really encourage you to, to prayerfully consider being a part of that, especially now that Doubt and Abbey is over. There's just nothing else to do on Sunday night. Come on. Ladies, you left me hanging. I'm the only dude in the room watched it. I thought it ended very well, by the way. It did. NASCAR was over, so we watched it. And seriously, we have no Doubt and Abbey fans here. Yeah, you and me. We walk with God. You're probably a light in the morning person too, aren't you? No? Okay, you're only half close with this God as you should be. All right, we're going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time for our offering. Uh, okay, so our offering goes towards mission work here in the States and globally um, and also the ministries of Carpenter's Way. And if you are visiting, we ask that you not give. This is for those who attend here regularly. We don't want you distracted by money. We... We really want you to fall in love with Jesus. That's our hope and our prayer. We're just glad you're here, and uh, thanks for being with us this morning. Thanks for watching on the Internet, and we hope that having been here today, you'll, you'll go close to the Lord. And, and uh, did I mention Tori Wednesday night? I skipped that. One more announcement. Tori Alverson, who has been our missionary to Madagascar, is going to be sharing her mission uh, with us Wednesday night, and, and you need to come out for that. Uh, pictures? What God taught you? Application? Yes. We'll talk. No, it's going to be so good, you guys. You want to come out and see what God did through Tori. And again, as we give, this is the kind of stuff we give towards, mission work and all. But I would encourage you, even if, you're, if Wednesday night is a busy night for you, just come out Wednesday night and join us. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. You'll, you'll be glad that you did. So let, let's pray. Father, we thank you for allowing your kids to gather together this morning and, and celebrate you and worship you. And we thank you for how you provide for us. Thank you for this um, this weather today, uh, it's so beautiful after having all the rain that we've had. And um, Lord, I thank you for peace, peace and quiet in a noise culture right now that's politically upended. Uh, there's a lot of yelling going on. I thank you, Father, that you are, uh, you are the Prince of Peace. Father, we need your peace this morning. Um, it, uh, it would appear that there's a lot to be mad about if all you're living for is this life. But you have given us hope beyond this life. And so it is my prayer, Father, that those watching on the Internet and those in this room would be drawn to you today, uh, the peacemaker. And, uh, Father, I pray that we would be good ambassadors of your kingdom. And thank you for those who were able to get up this morning and that are here to celebrate. Uh, Father, thank you for how you have provided for us financially in the past. And I know you're going to continue to, uh, to provide for us financially in the future. Um, to do the things you want us to do. So we love you. Thank you for loving us first. And uh, I pray that we just have a really great time together. In Jesus' name, amen.
my equal, asks the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. 
Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. Lord, I love and I trust you. Guide me in all of your ways. Show me your power in my life. You place the stars in the heavens. You hold them in your hand. You are creator of all things. You call me friend. You're my provider, my faithful healer. Strong protector, my father. Your cross paid the ransom for my sin. Through death, you offer me life. You rose and now reign forever. Now I.
Stay now. 
forever to our God. And He has wiped away the stain of all our sin and shame and has asked us to come and If you guys know Gina that sings on Sunday morning, uh, <laughs> she's a tall one, <laughs> a tall lady that's probably taller than me stands here. Uh, just their family's going through a lot of stuff. Uh, we have Steve here um, on the bass, just going through stuff with his mom. And I know there's a lot of you guys going through stuff. And uh, we don't do stuff like this very often because, you know, it's just not really who we are, I guess. But uh, I'm going to ask you if you're going through something and you're comfortable, just stand. If it's something that you're just, uh, man, I just need, uh, I need some help. I need, I need God to intervene in a situation um, that only God can. Uh, just stand where you're at. Um, we're not trying to, you know, call you out or anything like that, make you feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, we sang through that song, uh, you're my provider, you're my father, you're my healer, you're my protector. And we just sang through just resting in the fact that he is God. So uh, if you're close to these guys, if you're close to someone that's standing right now, would you uh, just kind of gather around them? We're just going to say a quick prayer and just just kind of ask God to do what God can, only God can do. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you are our provider. We thank you, Lord, that you are our healer. God, we thank you that you are our protector. Most of all, God, we thank you that you are our Father. God, we thank you that we can come to you and that we can rest. God, that we can lay down our worries and our burdens and all the things of this world, God, and just, just rest in your arms. God, I just ask, Lord, that for these situations that are represented this morning, I ask, Lord, that you would be God. I ask, God, that you would, you would do what you want to do. God, that we'd be okay with that. God, that we would truly rest. We would truly rest from our worry, from our work, from our trying to fix it and make it better. God, that we would truly just be able to lay at your feet and just ask you to do what only you can do, Lord. And that is to give us peace in spite of the storm. God, we thank you for what you're doing here at Carpenter's Way. God, we thank you for where you're taking us as, a, as individuals and as a family, God. And I just ask, Lord, that you would continue to lead us down that path. God, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to dismiss our children for GPS at this time. The rest of y'all, turn uh, in your Bibles to James chapter 1. Uh, James, or Jacob, which was probably his name, and probably the brother of Jesus, begins his letter with a fairly traditional greeting. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the twelve tribes, 
Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. This verse um, that opens this letter that actually reads more like a sermon than it does a personal note seems harmless enough, uh, but actually makes a pretty significant uh, introductory statement for the letter that we're, we're studying. If you remember back in our introduction um, of the study a few weeks ago, this letter contains 108 verses in which we find 54 practical instructions for us. That is one for every two verses. That's why I said that it, uh, it reads more like a, a sermon than it does a personal note. Uh, uh, as we've already discussed in previous weeks, many confuse the intent, uh, the intent of Jane's instructions and they end up developing a doctrine of, of working for our salvation. And if I may make a bold and offensive statement, that's only because you haven't paid attention while he's writing. Um, James, uh, for instance, in the introduction, tells us who he's writing to. It says that he is writing to Jewish believers. In fact, 11 more times in this letter, he will refer to those to whom he is writing as brothers and sisters under, in Christ. This letter was directed towards um, and to be read by God's children. James is exhorting us, uh, now that we have been saved and declared right with God through Jesus Christ, he's telling us how then we shall live by faith. How to put on practical righteousness, which is where we get the title. If Paul's letters, um, just to give you some context, if Paul's letters which are intrinsically personal, are 80% doctrine and 20% practical, how then shall we live? James is just the opposite. It's about 90% how then shall we live and about 10% doctrine. There is one place in James where he actually goes after unbelievers. But the rest of this letter is clearly written to the children of God. It's about applying our faith or living out our faith. One more thing about this first verse is uh, I want you to note how James introduces himself. He does not start out by saying, hey, I'm the brother of Jesus, or hey, I'm, I'm one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. His self-introduction is, I am a slave of God and Jesus Christ. That is a very significant statement. Paul clearly says that about himself. But if you skip over the introduction... Not only do you not understand who he's trying to instruct, but on top of it, who he is and how he sees himself as the one shepherding us. He is not coming at us as if he has all the answers and he's worked it all out and he's telling us as his, uh, his parishioners how to live. He's actually saying, I've been here before you. I'm God's slave. What I'm about to tell you is hard. And there are places that you're going to notice in James as we keep walking through it in large sections of two and three verses at a time. We'll be done with James in about six and a half years. But James will actually admit some places. For instance, there's one place in the middle where he says it's a good thing to be an elder or a teacher, but not everybody should do it because we have a hard time control, controlling our mouths. He talks about his own weaknesses in the flesh and the struggles even of leadership, and, and, and he admits the struggle we have. But if you don't understand that James is a fellow struggler and sojourner, a child of God, trying to instruct other children of God, how then shall we behave as we're scattered throughout the globe, and specifically to these Jews, that we go into James thinking, man, this guy is bossy. 
This guy is telling us, now I have to work for my salvation. And I'd like to say something this week that I'm going I'm to drive home more in the coming weeks. And that is that James is all about faith. That is shocking for those of you who study James, but you're going to start seeing it today. All of the things that he tells us to do and all the things he tells us to control come back to the fact that we don't trust God. In fact, in this morning's text, if you'll pay attention for the next half hour, I'm going to explain why most Christians are miserable. And maybe that affects some of you. Maybe you grew up in a church that would, like myself, that would proclaim that there's peace available and joy available to the child of God, but you never saw it by those people that you were following. You saw grumpy Christianity, angry Christians. It, it, we, a lot of us felt like God was gracious to those who were unsaved, but at, once you get saved, you better never screw up again or he's going to come down on you. And we looked around and we watched as, as the adults that we, we, uh, we model. You want to know why young people don't come to church today? It's because we don't really live what we claim to believe. And that has caused a crisis among the youth of today. And frankly, it should cause a crisis in your heart. If this ain't true, we shouldn't waste our time. None of us would care about the time change if we didn't have to be in church. We could just sleep our way through till NASCAR, and then you could go back to sleep after the 50th lap until the last 25 laps. But that's because I'm a fan. Listen, you guys, I want you to understand something. Jesus Christ offers peace, hope, and joy. But he doesn't offer it just to offer it. And this text talks about it. He begins his first instructions to us real quickly after he introduces himself in verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, second time in two verses, he referred to us as the family of God. Who's he writing to? Very important. You're going to get bored of hearing that. He's writing to believers. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it as an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. He says here as he begins his letter, and, and we talked about this two weeks ago, that we should consider it joy when we face trouble, any kind of trouble. And one of the things we talked about is what the word any means. It could be self-inflicted trouble because of infidelity on your part. Maybe it's the pain of a divorce that even you're at fault for. It can be uh, the pain that comes through the natural progression of life. Maybe you're having physical problems. Or it can just be pain that exists. It can be feeling bad, but it's trouble. It can be persecution. Any trouble means any trouble. And he's telling us that when any trouble comes our way, we should find it joyful because it grows us up. Trouble grows us up and teaches us to endure. It teaches us to trust God. It teaches us that our daddy, who happens to be the king of kings, has this all under control no matter what our flesh is telling us. Trust. Uh, do you remember what the psalmist said about our daddy? God is God over all kings and all creation. Psalm 8 says this, O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should, take thought, that you should think about them? 
human beings that you should care for them. You have made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge over everything you made, putting all things under their authority. The flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims in the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Part of our struggle is we have forgotten who our daddy is. It is hard to remember that when you hear the noise of culture and society and and doctors and sickness and, 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 and the pressures of life. It is easy to forget that our daddy is the king of kings and is in control of our things. That now that we are the forgiven of our sins and we have been adopted into God's family, we are his very children and our only task is to trust him. Let me take you back, and hopefully you can see this, because this morning is part message and part conversation. But I I want you to remember what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve decided to sin. I want you to really, really think about it. It wasn't just saying, I don't want to do it your way, God. Eve actually thought she could be helpful with her family, it says in 1 Timothy, that she was deceived into thinking that that fruit that she took and ate from would actually make her wise. She actually believed that she could make decisions about right and wrong, good and bad, what's best for her family. If if that was the sin that God was trying to protect Adam and Eve from, then you you have to realize then that God's desire was to keep us naive and trusting. He did not want us to worry about right and wrong. And by the way, no matter what your fourth grade Sunday school teacher taught you, sin existed before Adam and Eve sinned. Lucifer had already been cast out of heaven. He was bringing temptation to them in the form of a serpent. Understand that a lot of the simplicity that we were taught simply isn't true. The fact is that God wanted Adam and Eve naive of their nudity, naive of of sin's existence, and not worrying about any of that. All they needed to do was fill the earth and name creation. They were to take care of the garden that was weedless. But the problem is that our flesh and our pride want to share the throne with God, just like Lucifer did. We keep thinking that God can't handle it all, so we've got to help him along. And I want to tell you that that what happened in our study of Romans, to my heart, has had such an impact on me. We all know Romans 1.16 that talks about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. But Romans 1.17 says that this faith we have been given, this, this life that we live in God, is from start to finish an act of faith, of trust. And we struggle with that faith. We want God, and look, when I say we, I mean me too. We want God to save our souls and then kind of leave us alone to live our lives as we see fit, unless we get sick or don't have enough money, or have a crisis, and then we call on him, then we want him to come fix it, and then we want him to go back into heaven and leave us alone until we call him again. That's kind of where we live, right? We'll turn the cameras off for just a second. The, the truth is, that's where most Christians live. I know who to vote for. I know what to say. I know how to live. I know how to make money. I'm going to go to school. I need more of this and more of that. God, here, dear Jesus, our family is struggling, and I think the root of it is we don't have enough money. If you will only give us enough money, our marriage will be better. That's not true. We go to God in prayer, taking our concerns to him and the solution. 
which says we don't really trust God for the solution. We think we tell him what the solution is, and we determine whether or not he has answered based upon whether or not he answers it the way we want. And when he doesn't answer it the way we want, we default with, well, I guess he said no. What if his answer isn't yes or no, it's it's none of your business? What if actually what happened at salvation was he restored us into perfection by declaration the way we were in the garden and you and I stand before him according to Colossians chapter 1, pure and holy. Our flesh has not caught up to it yet and that's what James is about. Put on what your flesh doesn't know but is a fact inside. What if this is practically living out what our flesh fights every moment of every day? What if the the question, the challenge, what if the, the charge of the child of God is not don't sin, but trust me? What if it's different? What if you and I, by by well-meaning preachers, have been kept in a struggle that we have already got victory over, so we never go on to joy because we never learn to trust? We're so busy trying not to sin, we never get to trust because the one in heaven, by default, ends up as a God who goes, well, I saved your butt, and you're acting like you don't care. And you know what? I'm keeping records. Well, Mark... It's not records with a capital R. It's records with a small R, because I know I'm not going to hell. But you know, he doesn't like it when I sin. No, he doesn't. That's what Good Friday is about. When you lied this week, when you lusted, when you deceived, when you ate too much, whatever your sin was, he beat the stink out of Jesus on your behalf. That's what he put on Jesus He doesn't just look at you and go, I guess I'm going to grade on a curve. He says, one more whip on Jesus. That's why he was beaten for your transgressions. That's why he was hung naked on a cross. That's why he was mocked. It's through his stripes we've been healed. You've been healed. Sin isn't the problem. The battle of the spiritual life is not about sin or not sin. It's about trust. And if we trust, sin goes away. If we halfway trust, we declare things that don't practically happen in our life, and then we get mad and we try to control our temper instead of looking at God going, your will be done, not mine. When Jesus was arrested in the garden moments after praying, take this cup for me, He didn't go, oh, darn it, Dad, why didn't you answer my prayer? He did answer his prayer. Your will be done, not mine. That's trust. And that's what James is about to talk about here. Now that we are forgiven of our sin and adopted into God's family, now that we are his children, his task for us is to trust him, to put legs to that truth that David just wrote about, to choose to choose faith in our daddy that Paul talked about in Romans 1.17. How a person finds the abundant life. Faith or trust in our God when all looks lost and hopeless. Faith that even if we lose the battle, we have already won the war through Christ. This letter is about growing this new relationship with the Creator by faith. You and I see, find joy. When, when James writes to us and he says, you should have, when you encounter troubles, find it joyous because you are growing up. You're going to be matured. You and I go, well, Can't you just teach me through a book? Absolutely not, because this isn't about head knowledge. It's about a relationship. That's like like getting married 
and going to a Christian bookstore and buying every book on marriage in hopes that that makes you a good husband. It may give you good information, but if you want to be a good husband, you've got to get to know your wife. If you want to be a good wife, you need to get to know your husband. You've got to spend time together because this isn't about head knowledge. This is about a relationship. And I want you to know that Western culture moves us out of relationships into head knowledge. It moves us into, if only I have more knowledge. Look at what's going on around us. People keep trying to figure out how to educate our children. The problem with our culture today, no matter what anybody says, is not education. It is a core principled life based upon this truth that God loved us enough to send his son to die for us. And there is hope in him. Our hope is not found in defeating ISIS. Our hope is not found in more money. Our hope is not found in better business. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ. And no matter what anybody says about the history of this country, this country was founded on the principle of God helps those who help themselves, which isn't just heretical to Scripture. It is, it's satanic. That may work for a country, but it does not work for a child of God. God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who desperately seek Him. That's what scripture says. Oh, no, he's getting political. That's a liberal concept. It's a biblical concept. And we have successfully married. I'm going to let James. I'm going to let James talk about this. Pastor Mark, drowning in debt and fear and hopelessness is where I'm at. I don't understand. I don't know how even if I wanted to, if I wanted to find my, my difficulty, my pain, joyful. I don't, even, I don't even know how to start. Well, the good news is the scripture is written not just for a bunch of Jews scattered throughout the earth, but for you. Look at James 1.5. This is the very next verse. Find a joy. What? How can I find this joyous? If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he'll give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. Run to your daddy. Run to him. Don't walk. Don't crawl. Don't be pious or religious. Run and ask him. Don't read a book on asking. Run to him. Run to him. And it actually says that he will not rebuke you for asking, as opposed to what my sixth grade Sunday school teacher told me. Whatever you do, don't ask why. This tells me to ask why in spades. It's okay to run to him. And he won't rebuke you. By the way, this is not a new concept in James either. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus himself said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Jesus said it. Come to me. In, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, Since we have a, a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. And just like James says, Paul says in Ephesians 3.12, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. How can I consider my life's troubles, though, joyous, even if I can go to God? How can I, how can I find maturing that's painful? How can I find it when I don't understand what he is doing? James 1.5. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you, and he will not rebuke you for asking. But, but, 
There's always a but. James 1.6 gives us a warning. When you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. All right, now we're about to turn the tables on us. Because this is an understudied passage. James' next instruction is to remind us that we do not run to God asking him to prove that he is still taking care of us. Which is what most of us do. God, I need you. And, and, and I promise that if you heal me, I will make sure that everybody in the whole world knows that you healed me. That's dealing God a set of cards. It's bartering. Dear God, I need you to prove that you're still there because I don't feel you. That's not fully trusted. That's negotiating. This instruction is that when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. God alone. When you ask him to heal you, do you ask him to heal you like Jesus asked to be removed from the cross? Not my will, yours be done. There's nothing wrong with asking him to spare you. There's nothing wrong with asking him to give you a better job. He's your daddy. He says, come, come boldly. There is something wrong, though, with not remembering that he may say no. There is something wrong with putting your eggs in your own basket and pretending you're putting it in God's. I I know some of you are looking at me confused, or it's the early hour, because it's actually only 9.31. People are going to start coming in. Make sure to give them a dirty look. But I, I want you to understand this. Most of the time when we go to God for something we need, when we're in trouble, which is the context of this, we go to God telling him what we need. Right? I mean, am I, am I the only one who does that? I mean, most of the time that's what we do. God, give me, give me uh, you know, let me get into the right school. Let me get the right money. You know, help me with my health. Help my children. We go to him telling him what we need. Here's my question. I want you to think philosophically. Who are you really in that moment putting your trust in? It's in your own understanding. I mean, there's nothing wrong with going to him and saying that. Jesus did that about the cross. And that's specifically in Scripture so that you know he prayed that. You know, not every prayer that Jesus prayed is in Scripture, but that one is. And I want you to remember as we go into Good Friday in a couple weeks that Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before his arrest is, remove this cup from me. In other words, I don't want to do this. I don't even like these people that much. That's not what he said. He said the first part. Take this cup from me. And he prayed this amazing prayer. And then he ended it with the most important statement of his whole prayer. What is it? But not my will. Yours be done. There's nothing wrong with what we were taught to pray about. Pray about that. Go to God with it. But you've got to remember to do, not to be divided. It is not in your understanding that God has to answer prayer. It's almost like we believe we have it figured out and God is the impetus for us figuring it out. We need your power now to do what we want you to do. Is that not how we pray? We go to God and we tell him what we want him to do with his power, but in his, in his name. And by the way, if you do what I want you to do, I'll promise to tell everybody it was you that did it. It wasn't my idea. I mean, this is, this is, this is the problem with how Christianity has started to explain away how to, how to effectively prayer is the name of a book. I've never heard of an ineffective prayer. That's like saying that my children coming to me and asking me questions is ineffective. Even if I say no, it's still effective. I want a conversation with my children, don't you? Don't you want your grandkids to come up with you? I mean, even the things you find frustrating, asking 25 times that uh, if they can have a cookie before dinner is annoying until you go down to Children's Hospital in Texas and see some children who are laying in bed with cancer. 
all of a sudden you go home and say, keep asking, it's okay. I'm going to keep saying no, but it's okay. This is a relationship based upon context. And God wants us to understand that he wants us to come to him, but we can't come to him thinking we have it figured out or, or, or wavering. The fact is you can go to God with your concerns and your requests. You can even tell him what you want him to do, but at the end you must pray like Jesus or you're divided because you're really putting your faith in your own understanding and ability to see what the right answer is. And then at the end of the day, um, the problem is if God doesn't answer and you're still going to be faithful to him, we go, well, I guess he said no. Maybe he's not saying no. Maybe he's going, I'm not going to change because of your prayer, but I'm going to change your heart. You see, God's got this worked out. Before the foundation of the world, it's all worked out. He's got the beginning and the end solved. The question is, where are we going to be in our level of joy? The only way to consider it joy when you're going through trouble is not knowing that God is going to solve your problem, but knowing that even if he doesn't solve your problem the way you want it to be solved, you are more committed to him than you are yourself. That's faith. In my mind, I keep having, and I've asked you this before, it was a 70s commercial, now I'm aging myself. But do you remember the Nest Ice Tea Plunge? Some of you do, some of you don't. Basically, the commercial was a person standing on the edge. It's a hot day, and they're sweating. Obviously, they're from Texas, and they're, they're, it's probably February. And they're, they're, they're sweating, and they're hot, and somebody hands them iced tea, and as soon as they drink that Nest Tea iced tea, they, pl- they fall back into the pool with the iced tea, which, by the way, messes up the acidity of a, of a pool, but that's a different discussion. The, the fact is that they fell into the pool because they had been refreshed by the nest tea. We need to do that in faith. Most of us, we stick our fingers in the pool of faith. And we only stick our fingers and maybe our hands and sometimes our arms. And sometimes we actually let our head go in when we're drowning. But as soon as we're done with our problem, what do we do? We go lay out at the side of the pool. Until we need God and then we jump back in the pool. Sort of, in the shallow end. You see, the point is God wants us undivided. He wants us fully committed to trusting him, even if we die. Well, that sounds kind of crazy. Not when you believe that he's the creator of life and death, though death, where is your sting? Not when you really believe that he's the resurrection and the life, even though we die, yet shall we live? Not if we really, really believe that he solved our eternal problem. If we really believe what we claim we believe, then falling into the pool of faith is not that complicated. The problem is, none of us really, really, really believe it. We believe it to the point of salvation. We believe it, but we're not sure he has our best interest in mind. To which I want to be clear this morning, he does not have your best interest in mind. He has his own. I'm sorry. You have been lied to on a regular basis. God does not have your human, physical best interest in heart. He has his own. And he's invited you to participate with him in his work. And for a lot of us, we say we are, but we're not really. We just want him to continue to make our life as comfortable as possible. And when he doesn't, or when we see an end to it, we get mad or pouty, or we take a few weeks off. James 1, 6, when you ask him, be sure your faith is in God alone. 6 through 8, do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is unsettled as the wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they're unstable in everything they do. 
Now I want to pause for a second because this is a very condemning verse. These verses. And, and you read this and, and people write books off of this. Oh, so how do I become an effective prayer? Be, unsta- be stable. Put your trust in the Lord. Well, then I have four chapters on what it means to trust the Lord. It's not complicated. You don't need four chapters on it. You know what it means. It means to trust Him. It means to put your hope in Him. It means not to be unstable. It means when you look around at the church, okay, let, let me step back, okay, because I want to point something out. When you look around at the church, especially in, a, in this political season, you see an unstable body that is so freaked out, she even attacks her own if they don't vote like you think they should vote. There are people in this room that are convinced that, that if a person doesn't vote the way they vote, that they, how can they even be saved? And maybe they're saved, but they're, they're not walking with God. A, uh, there was an article in a recent evangelical Christian magazine last week that declared that those self-described evangelical Christians who voted for Trump are obviously not regular church attenders or the kind of evangelical that God likes. Wow. Politically, liberal Christians find conservative Christians not Christ-like in compassion and concern for the poor and those who are disenfranchised. Politically, conservative Christians find liberal or not conservative enough Christians to be morally bankrupt and obviously guilt-ridden and soft. Do you know why there's so much hate and resentment, so much fire preaching against secular country and government? Why we have such a lack of peace in our churches, in our homes, in our hearts? Here it is. This is the answer. Here's the answer to why don't I feel what I was promised. Put verse 8 up there. Because you're divided. I'm not saying not like, knock it off. But we're all divided. We struggle with being divided. I'm the dad of two kids. I went to A&M this week for a cool $30,000. My daughter can go there. Yeah, UT, thanks for that. That was uh, $750,000. I don't know how much it is now. Are they giving out scholarships at UT? Listen, I got to tell you something. There's a lot of people walking around with AM rings going, that's where she needs to go. I got news for you. SFA is looking awful good right now. Yeah, your advertisements are inappropriate, but whatever. The, the, the fact is that God is at UT, and he's at AM, and he's at Moody Bible Institute, and he's at FSA, and he's even at Angelina. Did I say FSA? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm not that good at this job anyway. The fact is that we, God is not a Republican. And he's not voting for Cruz. Well, he's certainly not voting for Trump. Have you read the Old Testament? Well, maybe he's voting for Sanders then. He ain't voting. He's the king of the kings. We've lost our collective heads. Do we believe what we were taught as children about the end times? I mean, really believe it. Have you read how this ends? It ends really, really good for us, but it gets really, really bad in the middle. And we keep being told that we can stop it if we get the right leadership. 
Can you put that verse back up there, Bill? I, I, I really want us to keep looking at that verse. I got news for you, my Democrat friends. Hillary Clinton, Sanders, or whoever comes out is not the solution to America's problems and the problems of the poor and the drug addicted. And my conservative friends, a Republican Congress, House, and Senate a conservative evangelical, if everybody were born-again believers there, if everybody were faithful, if they were all godly, that is not the answer. Might I remind you that under the old system of things, God was the king of Israel, and he set a fair and moral law system up that had enforcement techniques in it, and the people still rebelled. Next time, when, during the election, some of you are going to put a sign in your yard, I vote for Jesus. Well, he already is king, and he was king of a nation, and they still flipped him off. The problem is that without surrendering our hearts to God, we are in trouble. And as children of God, we keep thinking that the answer to people's problems is our solutions. And I'm telling you that the answer to the problem is that this world goes to hell in a handbasket, gets cast into the lake of fire. God restores us to the right way he wants us to live by building a new Jerusalem in a new kingdom that we get to be a part of. So you want me to sit back and not do anything? No, I want you to bring as many people with you as you can. That's why we're here. We are here to steal the homosexual community from the clutches of the evil one. We are here to tell Democrats there is hope in the Lord. And you Democrats are here to tell Republicans that there's hope in the Lord. And not to win in the name of Jesus. Jesus, this is a Christian country. Read our history, my friends. And if it even ever could be, a country led by godly people, if that were possible. I just want you to explain for me then how the nation of Israel that had a leader that heard from God and God spoke directly through him and showed fire from heaven and he went up there for 40 days with Moses, remember, on the Mount Sinai and he's getting the exact law from God that he's supposed to lead his kingdom and do you remember what they did when he was there a little too long for their liking? They're looking, context, they're at the base of the mountain. They're looking up at the mountain. They see, they hear the thunder of God. They know Moses is up there. They get bored, so they get their second evangelical leader to actually build a golden calf. Do you remember that? And what they said was, make us a calf. And then once he threw the gold in the fire and the calf came out, they said, that's the God who delivered us from Egypt. Hey, could you quiet down up on the mountain, please? We're trying to talk here. That's what happened. Because I want you to understand that when your hope is not fully in the Lord, when you have divided loyalty between God and the world, God disappoints regularly because our ways are not his ways. And when he does, we take our gold and make a golden calf. And modern Christianity is a cult of the golden calf. Sorry, it is. It has information about God, but it has veered sharply left or right, and it is no longer about his purposes and plans and his sovereignty. It's about God giving you whatever you want, and I've got news for you. He's never done that in Scripture, not in the Old or the New Testament, and he's not going to. He is our daddy, and he's got a better plan. The question is, do you trust me? And the more you say you trust me, but still want your way, the more you come to me to get your own way, the more divided your loyalty is going to be. Because I'll tell you, there is one place more dangerous than in a satanic coven for a human being. And that's inside of a church that keeps lying to you with a fish on it. 
And you better smarten up because you're being lied to left and right by people making millions of dollars in the name of Jesus at your expense. Why do people pack arenas where half-truths are told? Because they like what's being said. Does my flesh wish God would do it the way I want him to? Sure, but my head knows I'd screw it up worse. I'm not running for president because I don't want to be accountable for what I do. I want God to rule because he is God. Do you know why Christians are miserable? Because our loyalty is divided between God and the world. If you're completely committed to God's work in the world, sickness, poverty, whatever comes your way, whatever trouble or trial or tribulation, cannot rob your joy because your joy is firmly planted in heaven, in God's kingdom, and God's plans. Does that make sense? I know this is hard to hear, and I want to tell you right now that I haven't got it all together. And later in James, you're going to see that James says we struggle with this. But I want to make it clear, that's the answer to the question that we all have. Why don't I see the joy that's promised in the church? And the answer is because, frankly, we keep going to God wanting our own way. And God is more committed to his plan than your, than your happiness. God's desire is not to make you happy. It's to make you holy. And because of that, the trouble's going to come. That's why James says, I know you're struggling. I know you're hurting. Trust me. I know of a pastor in this community when confronted with the hate-filled rhetoric he had towards gays, responded by saying this, I may be unbiblical in my approach, but I'm not going to stand by and let this country that my grandkids are growing up in become immoral. He's pastoring a church in this community. That, my friend, is the definition of heresy. Knowing what's true, but teaching something that is not for your own comfort, that is the definition of heresy. A cult is something that starts with the truth and begins to teach a lie for its own convenience. That's a cult. And that's a Southern Baptist church in this community. When we start preaching what we want to hear, because that makes us comfortable, knowing that what we're teaching is a lie, we're a charlatan. And you got to know God's word because you need to know him for yourself. Don't buy the lie. Trust him. It's going to get worse. No matter who becomes president, it's going to get worse. And then it's going to get better. If our full loyalty was to God and not to our comfort of this country, then we would see the things happening around us as prophecy being fulfilled and therefore reminding us that our daddy the king is coming for us soon and we would find hope in this mess. Does anybody even remember what the New Testament, specifically the book of Thessalonians, calls the end of time for us? The blessed hope of the church. We all grew up knowing it would decline 
into a kind of wickedness that existed in the days of Noah, but we act like we can stop it. I want to remind you that God is the King of Kings. We should put our hope and our faith not in country or in our own understanding, but in God. So, Pastor, you're saying that I should let the world decline. I'm saying that you can't stop it. What Daddy is doing, even if you spend every moment of every day trying, the end of the book tells us that Daddy is at work in this mess. And my encouragement to you and James' encouragement is to bring others into our family and stick with trust. Well, what does that mean? This is what it means, James 1, 2 through 8. Dear brothers and sisters, when trials of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. And when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If you need wisdom, ask our, God, our generous God, and he'll give it to you. He won't rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone, as opposed to your own understanding. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. We're talking about peace, hope, joy. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. We freak out because we are divided in our loyalty, and our trust has been placed in what keeps us afloat and happy, not in God. If daddy is where you place your trust, if daddy's wealth is what you treasure, if daddy's plans are your hopes, then, uh, there, then yes, there can be joy in the journey, even if it's difficult. If daddy is the one you look to for encouragement, and by the way, this is exactly what Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 6 when he said this, do not store up, yourself, store up treasures on earth. Do you ever have a hard time when you're reading, remembering back in the King James? <laughs> I've got all this memorized in the King James, so it's hard to stick with this. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the, if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. That sounds like the political season we're in. We, we have spiritualized secular things. No one can serve two masters. For you hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. These are Jesus' words. So I just shouldn't worry about everyday life? That's what Jesus says. Whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for their heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautiful as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the, for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, well, he, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have such little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Here's what you should do. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he'll give you everything you need. 
So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to have its own new worries. I like that. Well, ain't that true? Today's trouble is enough for today. You want joy? Stop being divided. Yeah, vote. And yes, you have to go to work. That's not what this is saying. It says seek first his kingdom. He's not telling you to sit in your living room and go, okay, God's going to provide faith. Can you go get the welfare check, please? It's not what it's saying. What he's saying is, seek first his kingdom, passionately strive to put on that righteousness we're talking about. You're already righteous. Put it on. And by the way, that's the fight for the believer. The fight for the believer in this first instructions by James are when you start freaking out watching the news about politics or the future of our country. When you start worrying, it takes courage to turn off the news because something in you is telling you exactly what the flesh was telling Eve. If you just eat from that fruit, you'll have enough knowledge to make wise decisions. You'll be like God. Well, God doesn't expect me not to be informed. Then be informed and turn the news off. If it's putting you in a bad mood or freaking you out, stop posting on Facebook why Christians shouldn't vote for Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. That's none of your business. If you think somebody's being a fool and is a brother, tell daddy on him. He'll take care of it. But you realize that this body is huge. There's millions of us who are worshiping God, and we come from different countries and different cultures and different upbringings, and we have different passions. That's what makes us beautiful. The fact is that some of us have a compassion gland bigger than our heads. And some of us simply want to stick with the Constitution because it was written by godly deists who are in hell this day. Seriously. You can't make that statement. I can because they denied Christ. Benjamin Franklin wrote letters six months before his death so that people would not think when he died that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Thomas Jefferson left us a legacy of a Bible, of the Gospels, that, in, that specifically removed any reference to Jesus Christ that was of a supernatural nature. By definition, according to 1 John, that makes Thomas Jefferson a what? An antichrist. Little a. Do your homework. There's a lot of money being made by the ignorance of evangelical Christians. Do your homework. Guys like me should never be telling you how to vote. Guys like me should be pointing you to Jesus. And the minute I stop pointing you at Jesus, it divides our church immediately on my opinions. Ding! Somebody just got a text. Text them back and tell them I'm talking. <laughs> you guys, look, I want, I want you to know something. If Trump wins... I know some of you are afraid that he's carrying around the nuclear <coughs> codes. He's got too much money to carry it around. The guy next to him is going to be carrying him. <laughs> or if Bernie Sanders wins and he goes to take 90% of your money away, 
and our money. And I have to start mowing your lawns. It doesn't really change anything, just so you know. Because not one of you is going to die before your time. Hebrews says, it is determined unto man once to die and after that to judgment. And if we run out of money because the government takes it, we just eat a lot of rice. Well, I don't want to eat rice. I like cattle. Well, then we'll take our 40 acres and we'll have cattle and we'll have steak every night. <laughs> I find, though, we have to wrap it in bacon. It makes it taste even better. <laughs> it doesn't change anything but our comfort. In fact, as we live in poverty, we get to tell other poor people about Jesus. Isn't that what we're here for? Well, I don't want to be uncomfortable. Neither do I. Neither did Jesus. But there's something more important than our comfort. And that's God's purposes. Unless we're divided. Get it? Lord, we got folks here with cancer. And they're fighting it, and they should. And we've got folks here who've lost their jobs and others going through divorces. And we've got others who are just flat out scared of this country and the world and those who hate us. And I get that. I pray that you would use each of those things in our life to teach us to trust you. I like comfort. I like NASCAR. I like a big steak. I pray that you will help me to like you more than any of those things. I pray for us as a church that we would be a people of peace and hope, a voice of reason in an unreasonable time, that our hearts would belong to you, our devotion would be to our daddy, and that we would understand that we are aliens and strangers and foreigners in this place, and therefore, we want to bless it, we want to make it wise, and the best we know how, and successful, but at the end of the day, we will be successful, we will have more than we could ever imagine because of the work of Jesus in eternity. So we're going to trust you, even if it's hard. So I pray, Father, that you would heal the sick, I pray that you would bless those who need money to feed their families, I pray for those who are struggling I pray that you would answer their prayers based upon their desires, unless that's not your will. And if that's the case, your will be done. Teach us to endure and not be divided. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study will start in 10 minutes.